0: Welcome you to this episode of War Cry Podcast. We are an all-Native-run podcast discussing data, events, issues, and historical connections about Northwest missing and murdered Natives. Thank you for joining us for this episode. My name is Emily Washines. I'm coming to you from the Yakima Nation. And my co-hosts today are Patsy Whitefoot, Robin Peebushy, and Lucy Smartlowit. So this uh, Washington Lawmakers Hail Passage of Bills Addressing Missing and Murdered Native Women. This is an article from Spokesman Review, but it's really well known throughout uh, Indian Country that Savannah's Act and Not Invisible Act both passed. So both bills had previously passed the Senate in March and will now go to the President to be signed into law. We also have an upcoming event coming up on October 2nd. It's called the Remembering Rosenda Strong Car Parade in Toppenish, Washington. This is the anniversary of when she went missing and toasted by her family. Um, she was later found in a horrific manner and she still has not been returned. Her remains have not returned to her family. You can find information about this uh, event on her family's Facebook page, Help Us Find Rosenda Strong. This is episode nine, which is our second to last episode for this season. We will return in June 2021.
1: Uh, yes, uh, they haven't sent out the flyer yet, but on September 30th, there'll be a, a parent engagement forum with the superintendent of public instruction. They're still working on the flyer, but there'll be, the focus will be on parent engagement within our school systems.
0: And we also have a video message from Liz Hildebrand, our previous guest.
2: Hello, everyone. Hello, Robin, Patsy, Emily, and Lucy. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast last week. Uh, it was really wonderful, enriching, and loving experience, healing experience for me to be able to come on the podcast and speak about my journey through grief uh, and my search for my son, Josiah, and his great loss, the one I still experience today. Um, I really appreciate you inviting me into uh, the Murdered and Missing Indigenous Peoples Movement as well as into the Yakima tribe. Uh, This is really huge for me. Um, And thank you too to Sissy Reyes, sister of Rosenda Strong, who went missing uh, in October of 2018 and was found July 4th, uh, 2019. Um, she reached out to me along with Carmen Strong, daughter of Rosenda Strong, um, and invited, Josiah invited me, uh, proverbially anyways, into their uh, the gathering that they had in June to uh, bring attention and keep Rosenda uh, out in the forefront um, in the community's mind. Uh, and handed out flyers, printed at their own cost, and have been very loving and supportive of me. It's the love and support of so many people uh, that have helped carry me through this incredible tragedy and uh, continue to lift me up when I cannot rise on my own. So thank you again, and I look forward to meeting all of you in the future. And thank you, too, to Tammy Ayer of the Yakima Herald, who continues to write about our murdered and missing loved ones, um, that this is really important uh, uh, stuff for us to be talking about. This is important for us to hold space with one another and and keep these stories in the forefront. Um, keep us talking about them and allow us to uh, come together through opening our hearts and sharing our experiences with one another. So thanks again and take great care. I hope to talk to you soon, bye-bye. We also have a guest today, which Patsy
1: will be introducing. Good afternoon. My name is Patricia Whitefoot, a uh, a citizen of the Yakima Nation. Uh, This afternoon, I'm excited to introduce you to uh, an amazing guest. Carolyn DeFord is Puyallup, Nisqually, Calitz, and mixed French Canadian descendancy. She is currently the Trafficking Project Coordinator, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Peoples Advocate for the Puyallup Tribes Community Domestic Violence Program. She supports program goals to address human trafficking, MMIHP, domestic violence and abuse, impacting the community. These important issues partnered with personal experiences and being the daughter of a long-term missing person have inspired her to raise awareness for missing and murdered indigenous peoples, prevention and the healing power of culture. In 2016, in an effort to support families, bridge gaps in media services, and assist with resources and advocacy, Carolyn founded Missing and Murdered Native Americans, a grassroots volunteer organization focused on supporting families, awareness, prevention, and advocacy. Good afternoon, Carolyn. It's wonderful to have you here.
3: Good afternoon. Thank you for having me.
1: So the first question we're going to ask, Carolyn, is I want to have you help our listeners know who your mother is. So would you please let us know uh, uh, when she went missing and where she was living and then
3: also a little bit about
1: her personality and character as your mother?
3: Yeah, my mom um, went missing October 29th, 1999. So we're coming up on the 21 year anniversary, 21 year anniversary of her disappearance. I lose count like this morning. I even had to ask myself how old I was. Um... And she lived in La Grande, Oregon, so small college town, rural Oregon. Um, it was kind of town where everybody knew everything that was going on. Everybody knew everybody's business and where everybody was. And we had lived there since like 1976 or so. So that was my, my mom had made a home there. Um, she was, um, she loved the outdoors and anything that had to do with sustainable uh, food sovereignty. So she had met made large gardens. We always had two, two gardens, maybe three. Um, she was harvesting and putting away food and putting away fruits and vegetables. And we would go to some old homesteads every spring and summer and fall to harvest apples and plums and peaches and pears that were in these old abandoned homesteads, you know, because they always had a little orchard out there. And she, um, she really enjoyed Going out and doing that. that was a lot of our family time, you know, mushroom picking and huckleberry picking, hunting. She she just enjoyed anything that had to do with being out there and in nature and and filling the freezer, you know, putting food in the freezer for the year, the coming year. And she was so independent, you know. I I have always been more of a, "Will you help me with this?" And my mom was like, "I'll do it myself," or she'd be like, "You can do it yourself." And she had so much confidence in her abilities to take care of herself and to do things and not rely on, on other people. And she was strong and fierce and, and I think always tried to bring more of that out in me. I have a little bit more of a, um, of a calmer personality than my mom did. And so she's always trying to light that fire in me and get me to, you know, get me to Fire me up. Get me to stand up for myself. Get me to do something. You know, and and I think in her passing, she's been able to. She's really been able to do that. You know, to bring that out in me. And um, she was kind. You know, she was kind and funny. And she was always taking starts off of her plants and getting them started and giving them to the, um, giving them to my grandma or giving, you know, giving starts to the, um, the neighbors or people come over and th- you never left empty handed you know she's always here take this and all oh, you need this and if it wasn't you know food or plants or treasures you know she was antique um an antique hound and a rock hound and um she just was interesting and it wasn't until she's gone and I'm an adult that I realized how interesting and smart and creative and resourceful she was you know and and that I, I sure wish that she was here to, you know, I, those are things I enjoy now, you know, and um, I miss that, you know, I miss that with her. And I imagine that it, it I can only imagine what things would be like.
4: So thank you so much. Um, what was your mother's name?
3: Her name was Leona Claire Kinsey. She was um, Puyallup Nisqually Cowlitz. Um, French Canadian, and I'm not sure. There's really no documentation on on what her mother, you know, what her mother's descendancy was. I'm maybe British, but I'm not. I'm not sure. Like she didn't really talk about that a whole lot.
4: Thank you. So before we uh, started the interview, you talked a bit how your experience um, with your mother really kind of informed the work that you're doing now with the Puyallup tribe. Can you let us know kind of what those experiences were and
3: what work you do with the Puyallup tribe? Um, I started working with the tribe in 2015. I had like a a turnaround for some reason. I I worked at a corporate job in in an international company. It was a great career and I woke up one morning and had an anxiety attack and it didn't go away. And I started feeling like I was five miles down the wrong, like there was a Y in the road and I took the wrong one and there was no other way to get off than to jump out, you know, and, and I quit my job. um, Didn't have anything else lined up. And I just stayed home and kind of focused on my family and, and um, didn't know what I was going to do. I probably interviewed for the tribe about 15 times before I, finally got a call back and it was a temporary position at children's services and I lived here for over over 20 years before I started you know started working for the tribe and um, I always had a really hard time connecting my work schedule didn't coincide with any community events and I live a little bit away away you know a ways away and not growing up here I didn't have any familial connections you know nobody knew who I was and I didn't know who my family here was or, or anything. And um, so I had a really hard time and working at Children's Services, I was able to be connected with some really gracious and beautiful mentors and teachers who, um, who showed me a lot about what it meant to be a uh, Coast Salish. You know, my, my family grew, grew up in Eastern Oregon. And so they how they related to being Native American was more plains and plateau and less coastal and um, if you'd asked me at any time to draw a traditional village it would have been teepees and buffaloes and and that kind of thing not a cedar hat or a cedar regalia and or a longhouse you know and so it really opened my eyes and and my spirit to who who we are or who I am and where I come from and I learned a lot about my family history and when I started at Children's Services, I learned about historical trauma, which was an entirely new concept to me, and it allowed me to really understand um, and forgive my mom for some of the things that she struggled with, and forgive myself, you know, for some of the things that I struggle with, and that was kind of a really great door opener, and seeing the connections between our, our youth and and our families who are struggling in the foster care system, and and child abuse and neglect, and just all of these intersections. Um, and that relationship, I started connecting it to the high rates of our youth and care to m- murdered and missing and and harm. One day, I just happened to stumble upon the presidential resolution for a National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered. And I think it was maybe 2016. And that might've been the first year that that they dedicated that day in honor of Hannah Harris. And so I approached our tribal council recognize May 5th um, within our tribal community and they without without a doubt or without much question were were very supportive and several folks in the community started sharing their stories with me and, and put up red dresses and signs and get a newspaper campaign and some social media work on raising awareness for missing and murdered indigenous women within our communities and not long after that, we signed a resolution acknowledging May 5th as a day of awareness for missing and murdered Native American people, um, not just our, our women, but we have a lot of mamas who are still here, you know, who are here and grieving their sons and sisters who are grieving their fathers and brothers, and and this is an issue that affects all, all of us, and so the tribe has been very supportive along those lines, and that kind of opened the door for me to get into to be approached by our Community Domestic Violence Advocacy Director, Billy Barnes, who's done amazing work in oh, prevention yeah. and wellness and, and the healing power of culture for survivors of violence within the tribal community for decades. So I started working with her and it kind of just, all these doors just opened from there, you know, and I was talking to one of my mentors once and was really afraid to take that leap from where I was, where I was comfortable, to, to moving into the DV program, and she just said, you know, who are you to question the path that creator, the doors that creator open for you, so I, so I did it, and now, you know, doors open, and I can't question how, how or why those, those do it, just pray that I, that I follow my path in the best way, the best way that I know how, and that I have guidance, you know, from my ancestors and creator to to do justice or, or honor those who we've lost. Um, when my mom disappeared, like like you'd mentioned, there's a lot of times where we don't have people to talk to, you know, and there's not any resources. You know, you file your missing persons report and you might be given a number, but you probably aren't. You probably have to go back and ask for one, but you're not given any tools. You're not given any resources. You're not given any what to expect or what can I do or or anything and back then there was no internet and I just felt so alone and alone from law enforcement and from my community and from my family and um, there was nobody to talk to about it at all and. I felt like I could, you know, once social media came out, I could share her poster and stuff and it wouldn't get any likes and it wouldn't get any shares and that hurts, you know. This is something that changes your life and people scroll right past it. Um but if I post on there, you know, some other nonsense, it gets sixty sixty-eight likes and a hundred shares, you know, and and um I started thinking about uh, you know, I've been on this journey for a little while and Every time somebody would go missing over the last 20 years, my heart would break for them. Like I would go back in my own journey about how scared I was at that moment. And how did I feel five days in and, and, um, lost, you know, and, and paralyzed, like I'm a fight, flight, or freeze, freeze. You know, like I didn't want any, any other families. Like if, if I could help make a difference for any of them to not feel alone, to have someone to talk to you, to have someone help share their posters, to make them a poster. Nobody makes you a poster. Law enforcement doesn't make you a poster. You'd think that that would be a basic service, that that would be the first thing that they do for themselves, you know, is make a poster, but they don't. We've got a, a hundred missing people currently in Washington State, missing Native people in Washington State right now that are documented Native, and there's probably posters for 15 of them some of them, we don't even have contacts for families to get pictures or to make sure that they have DNA in the system. They could be unidentified people somewhere and there's no DNA anywhere to identify them. And I just wanted to be able to let people know that they didn't have to walk alone, you know? And so I would start messaging people and say, I I read your, your, article today or I read about your family member today and I just want to say you know I'm on this journey with you I lost my mom my prayers are with you I'm here if you need to talk and 98% of the time they would message me back and just start conversation and most of the time their loved ones would come home or would make contact within a few days and we would you know share that relief you know and not having to worry about it at night when you can't sleep and not have anyone to talk to you know, so that was kind of where, where that had started and bringing some of that advocacy into the Puyallup tribe, into domestic violence awareness program, being that DV is such a contributor to hurt and harm to our, to our people and to our women. And um, CDC did a report several years ago that nearly 75% of, of Native women uh, that are victims of homicide have a connection to domestic violence and intimate partner violence. And it's preventable. You know that that's so preventable and so um that's kind of where my my awareness and work in the Puyallup tribe kind of started and it's kind of just grown from there and like like I mentioned earlier you know uh, my one of my mentors said when a door opens for you know when a door on your path opens who are you to question the doors that creator opens for you you know and um a lot of work has been done um by people you know by people with the with the power to to open doors for our families to come forward, to heal, to provide services and resources and let our community know that they aren't alone, you know, and that, that their loved ones matter, you know, like our, our councilman, David Bean always says, what affects one of us affects all of us. And, and it truly, truly, it does, you know, and it's just been a blessing to be able to be a part of, of some of that healing work.
0: So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this aspect of like community awareness, And helping to bring that together with other people. You know, and I wanted to hear about these awareness events that you've helped be a part of. um, Specifically, there's something at Paddle to Puyallup where there's thousands of different people, um, non-Natives and different tribes that come uh, to, you know, celebrate and honor the water, these traditional songs. And I remember seeing, um, you know, so much different awareness being brought. And I actually got my little Paddle to Puyallup. Um, yeah,
1: earrings.
0: yeah <laughs> um I actually bought this at Lummi the year after but I didn't get it enough so uh I and keep celebrating but again these events and this aspect of bringing forward awareness tell us about you know what you shared and what others shared with you at these uh awareness events
3: paddle to Puyallup was um I don't know I, I can't put words to it it was such a a profound time for a lot of folks. And I approached our canoe family tribal council and my, my director and our program participants, you know, my, my coworkers, my, my family at CDVAP who, who do a lot of this work with me. And it's not necessarily fair that I get to be the one to share it and talk about it because it, it wouldn't be possible without all of their work and support and time into, into doing, you know, doing the work that it takes to, to make these things happen. But I approach them about wanting to do something to honor our missing and murdered people who should be on this journey and aren't, and to heal our loved ones who are on paddle, you know, on the on the canoe journey and her paddling every day and and grieving and it's such a healing event that dedicating a project to that um and so I had a couple of ideas of what to do but one was this this button blanket or paddle blanket that we did and our program was allowed to set up a tent right outside of the protocol tent um, and every day we had a different activity, but the paddle blanket was was consistent throughout the whole week. And we had um, little three inch carved cedar paddles and an assortment of tools to decorate them. and we just invited anybody to come and and dedicate a a paddle to their loved one or somebody you know a story, somebody in their community who was who was missing or murdered. And we later hung them on the blanket. Um, they were hung with one red bead um, to signify, you know, the, that that they ca- still carry a place in their heart, in our hearts. They'll always be with us. And we were able to honor our relatives who did take, who who came to dedicate a paddle with us, you know, who came to spend that time and share their stories with us, and and honor their loved ones. We were given some time on the floor to call all of our participants and family members of missing and murder down to the floor and say a prayer. And um, we had an elder play some songs on his flute as we did the gifting. And just, there had never been to my knowledge, such a, such a large event of community coming together on this, coming together for healing and for ceremony and for honoring and remembering and um, to be able to honor our missing and murdered and our families who are grieving in our way, in our community, in in the public. You know, if your loved one goes missing, you don't get a funeral. You might get a candlelight vigil these days, but attendance is unpredictable and sporadic, you know? And this was a way to give ceremony to folks who maybe had, had never been able to have, have ceremony, um, to have their name read and remembered in such a large platform with their people, with people who knew them and loved them and, and acknowledged them in a good way. And so that was kind of how that that came about. We had over 269 paddles. Um, dedicated sometimes they were multiple paddles to the same person and that was because uh, one of the things that I really got out of that like my takeaways was one person you know affects the lives of so many who are missing and I think statistically they say the average is 12 people are impacted when one person are directly impacted when one person goes missing and um it was beautiful. We did the faceless doll project we had a lot of awareness and prevention materials available. And we tried to keep, um, sage going out there through, through the majority of the time. And sometimes people would just come to our booth every morning, just to smudge, you know, just to, just to smudge and say, how are you? But I can't, I can't express how beautiful and powerful that was just for me, you know, and, um, to share those moments with people.
0: I think the sharing is important. I remember watching that happen, and I saw actually Patsy was there as well. Um, Patsy, do you want to share a little bit about that?
1: Yes, thank you, um, Emily, I, and also thank you, Carolyn, for being with us today and sharing about you know, your journey on regarding missing and murdered Indigenous women and people. Um, Yes, it was a powerful event. And um, every canoe journey that I've been, I've been to several now, and I stayed to the end. It's a made a commitment to uh, for my family to participate as well. And my beginning started with our our swan dancers from here. And we, of course, uh, started out with the Quinault Nation and just gradually moved er, uh, to every event that uh, the canoe journey was held. But just the coming together of the different tribes tribal people from First Nations, from throughout the Northwest, well, not only Northwest, but also nationally to attend this event, I think is phenomenal. But the fact that you were able to highlight uh, and the program staff and the tribe as a whole uh, was able to highlight, you know, this major issue in Indian country was is important. And I guess the takeaway I had is not only what you Covered, but also the fact that you've continued to build on that over the years. For instance, um, a year or two afterwards, you had the, the powwow during the you know the, the the dance event with the powwow that you have annually, and so it's continued to to live on. I know we talked about the role of namists, you know, which is important as well. It's a database that you're able to place the names of your family members um, in the database in the system in, that's known as NAMIS for missing people in the United States. So I think that's important, just an education about that because you're, it's true what you say when you have family members that are missing, it's like no one is there. There's nothing there for you to be able to reach out to. And I think just being able to highlight this is important so people don't feel so alone uh, there. And in my case with my sister, my my niece, Mariana Harvey, is the one who put, um, who lifted up her name and put her name on the paddle there. Um, and she talked to me about it and I said, well, go ahead. Uh, because we were just, we were all very busy during that time and we were all there, of course, you know, Emily was there as well. But I just want to speak to, you know, the fact that during the canoe journey on the floor, as you said, in the big arbor that the tribe had put up, the honor songs that were sung was so powerful. The honor songs that came out, you know, not only with the flute, but the songs that were shared with, um, you know, different tribes, different communities about missing and murdered. That was just so overwhelming for me personally. And... Over the years, my granddaughter, um, it's something that our, our swan dancers sing, but also my granddaughter has picked up on that song and we hear it in different places and she recalls it. Now we have the young girls that are starting to sing that song as well. And it's just so uplifting every time you hear it and, and there's different versions we know. And so just that sharing amongst uh, tribal people about this issue, I think is important. I wished you know, members of Congress would have been there to see such an event or, or you know, state officials to see such an event because I think they would begin to understand the significance of this topic. So thank you for sharing. I uh, really mm-hmm. appreciate it, Carolyn.
3: Thank you. You mentioned NamUs, you know, and one of the, we had different events scheduled throughout the day. And one that I thought would be um, Needed was that Washington State Patrol and NamUs accepted our invitation to come and set up a booth for a day and it was like 106 degrees so it was uncomfortable. We had one family stop and make their missing persons report with Washington State Patrol and then move on to the next booth and make their missing persons report with NamUs and provide DNA samples. Their loved one had been missing for 12 years at that time with no missing persons report because law enforcement told them that she was over 18 and she had the right to go missing several times. And then um, on another attempt to make a missing persons report, they were told that it was done and it wasn't. And so they came to our booth after 12 years and filled out their paperwork with Washington State Patrol and NamUs. And NamUs, uh, Jessica Hager came all the way from where she from, Minnesota you know, and and, um, came all the way here and sat out in the 106 degree heat. And I was like, sorry, we're Coast Salish. We're not used to this stuff. You know, it never gets that hot on this side of the mountain. You know, it it rarely gets over 90. And it was dusty and people just did not want our booth was right in the sun. And um, one person stopped and filled all that paperwork out. And we still went through some of the the typical cha- every typical challenge that you hear about with a case we still went through that even after getting that done so a lot of frustrations and a lot of things that we have to work on but eventually they did get their missing persons report filed and get it put into namus and we were able to check um, their dna against some unidentified that were freakishly coincidentally like matched um, some of this description and able to rule those out And that was a relief for the family. And, um, just this year she was found alive and well, you know, um, and been able to reconnect with, with her family. You know, now it's been 14 years. One, one person stopped, you know, uh, two years later, she's reconnected with her, with her family. And, um, what a story of hope, you know, and, and, uh, if they hadn't come and accepted that invitation, you know, that never would have happened, you know, and, and it was really, it was, I don't even know how to express like how grateful I am to them for their participation, but to just be in awe of, of how things work, you know, like, and grateful that they have that resolution, you know, that they have that resolution able to rebuild their relationships and, And um, that relief, you know, of all of these gruesome images that you get when your loved one is missing, especially long term, and um, all the things that you imagine. And she held out hope for her sister for so long and stayed positive. It's a beautiful reconnection.
5: Thank you for sharing that story. I think that is something that's important for people in our community to be able to hear, um, especially when we have outreach events in that sense sometimes our communities are not familiar with what resources there are and then of course you know you have to go back to that community trust building like where do where do we start with that? how do we know that you know NAMIS or WSP is is going to act on you know some of the information you know that our families are bringing forth when you know our people haven't really gotten a huge response in the first place so i think that's really exciting um to hear and to have it brought forth into the community even if it was just one it was very successful so that's beautiful
3: one at a time you know any win we can get you know and and especially at uh, a happy ending one you know sometimes we just really need that boost of faith there's so many so many heartbreaking reports that come out that don't get that happy ending and and um so many times the system fails and this is one way um one way that it that it, it had its failures, but it it eventually um, worked out, but not without the, you know, not without the hard work and diligence of, of people pushing, you know, and fighting for their family. And I think it's a good example also of the power of advocacy, because I have a hard time advocating for myself and for my mom. And sometimes I will let things go with my mom's case that if somebody else told me that story, I would be like, what? You know, like, okay, so you can do this and this and this. I can do this for you if you like. Like I can make some phone calls, you know, Mm -hmm. and sometimes it just takes a phone call to law enforcement to like get them to realize like, oh, I can't sit on this, you know, forever. And um, I don't do that for myself as much because I don't see it. We don't advocate for ourselves. Having people advocate for you. You know, and our tribal liaison um, that was hired for the Washington State Patrol a couple of years ago, this also would not have happened without her um, commitment and tenacity, you know, to make sure that that everything is is being utilized and done as thorough as possible and in as much ability with a, as much ability ability as she has. you know,
5: well, I think that's also a good. Segue into the next question, just in regards to what steps has the tribe taken to identify and seek resolution on the number of MMIWP cases in the service area. So I know that you spoke to some of the tribal community support that's being brought forth. Is there anything else um, that you feel is significant um, that the tribe has done to be able to help resolve these efforts?
3: Um, well, they've created resolutions, um, a resolution around missing and murdered Indigenous um, or Native American people within our community. They supported a resolution for the city of Tacoma to pass a resolution on missing and murdered, as well as a resolution with AT&I in 2018. So they do their their awareness events. They've created law and order codes to um, address human trafficking on our reservation with the knowledge that that is a contributor to missing and murdered and just a, a human rights issue that, that we have to address. They have been very supportive of our domestic violence program and the prevention of hurt and harm within our community and healing programs for families who are left behind. Oh, geez, what else? You know, all of our programs are aware of their link you know this is this is an issue that no matter what social service program we work with um what we do within our community if you're doing social service work your your job your end goal is to prevent hurt and harm you know whether you're doing chemical dependency or homelessness and or mental health or children's services or dv you know law enforcement it's to prevent hurt and harm and so this isn't a siloed issue it's a community issue i think the statistics that came out in the UIHI report with um, Anita Lucchese that highlighted, you know, where Tacoma sat in that was really eye-opening, not only for me, but for our tribal council and just to realize hearing our community stories that people don't necessarily talk about and not everybody feels like they have an open door to go talk to tribal council, but at our last May 5th event um, last year, we had over 22 people Take the open mic and speak and tell their story, and our chairman came up to me after that, and was like, "Thank you for this. It really opened my eyes because some of those people may not be Puyallup but they're part of our community, their loved ones were part of our community, and they may not feel like they have an open door to to share their experience with our leaders, and this opens the door you know and and I can't express." how proud I am of our tribal council for all of the support that they have have provided um, both spiritually emotionally and with the the power that they have to raise awareness and speak up for our, our people as much as they do they've been very committed uh I let me think am I missing anything that they that we've done um I can't I can't think of anything but there's a lot of work to be done in the future and so they're they're they've been very vocal um about their commitment to support
5: Thank you for sharing all of that. I think um, our tribal council role is just critical in our community to have that presence there at outreach events and whatnot, and then to also be able to have our community, our tribal members, feel like they're being heard You know, by the people that need to hear some of the stories. I think that's, that's amazing, actually. And hopefully that momentum will continue in the
3: future in your community. Mm -hmm. I hope so. I sure hope so. We've got a lot to do. (laughs) We all do. (laughs)
5: That's why we're all here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go ahead and take on the next question. And um, so as a person, I'm just really curious in general, like what's a story that resonates with you? Um, We talked a little bit about it before the interview had started. And I know that you had uh, uh, so many variations of stories that, that stuck with you, but I'm just wondering which one you would like to share with us today, or if there's more than one.
3: Paddle to Puyallup, um, that one where the family came forward and were able to, to um, get all those services done at once. Um, that one and the happy ending, like that that one is amazing. And such a beautiful family, like to see them get that like tears of joy we don't get tears of joy very often in this issue you know uh, my very first year working with cdvip my boss gave me a phone number and she didn't say much she just said here i want you to call her her mom is uh has been murdered a long time ago can you can you call her maybe she'll do maybe she'll do this you know and maybe she'll come to our candlelight vigil and i reached out and we had a good long conversation and her mother um was a victim of, of a violent crime, and our stories are similar and different, but it was the first time that I sat down face-to-face with someone who I could relate to as a daughter wanting your mom, you know, and needing your mom, and worrying about your mom, and, and um, what that does to your family, you know, the dynamics within your family, and the healing power of telling your story. Um, her name was um, Lily Cherokee Finley, and she um was found in the woods um in Montana in 2000 oh gosh same time as my mom 1998 1999 but um she had a lot of children you know she had children and family who miss her and had never you know they'd never had the opportunity to talk about her like this you know and um so that one really resonates with me just because i i can relate to to the family missing their mom right now my heart is really with the Kaylee May, Nelson Jerry's family. She could potentially be in the Spokane area. She, you know, she could be anywhere, but, but my heart is with them because you always want a happy, a happy ending and a resolution, you know, and that one always stays at the top of my heart. Lucinda Strong, you know, we're coming up on the anniversary of her disappearance and um still, family still fighting for justice and, and even to get their remains back. I mean, that's, that's like secondary victimization to hold her remains for that long. And how, you know, how you support and fight for that, you know, fight for that justice. That one has been, um, is always one of the first that comes to my mind too, because it's just such an example of how rumors have some truth to them, you know, and law enforcement don't necessarily take rumors seriously. They're hearsay and, and um, there's some truth to them sometimes. Um. Giovanna Tyler went missing on our reservation. She was a mama of three children. She was a victim of domestic violence and there's been no, um, no word or information on her case in a very long time. And so I always think about her, like she was not Puyallup, she was Macaw, but she was on our reservation when she disappeared. And we've got to, you know, we've got to think, think about that, you know, um, some of the recent case we had with Aaron Garcia going missing and, you know, luckily his family has some re- resolution and he was found, but it doesn't make that journey of waiting and and wondering and hoping and searching um, any less painful, you know, it just, they have a, a some closure. Yeah. There, there's, there's so many, but.
0: Um, Carolyn, I want to thank you so much for bringing up all the different cases. And I also want to, add on a little bit about Atwai Rezinda Strong, I agree with you that, you know, she was found, she went missing in October uh, 2nd, uh, and she was later found on a freezer along Highway 97 in Toppenish. Um, she was an enrolled Umatilla tribal member, but she lived on the Yakma Reservation. She also had Yakma uh, lineage. And yeah, you have these questions about why isn't she returned yet? Why is it taken so long? It's been over a year and to not have that level of closure. So I really appreciate you um, sharing those words with our audience today. And I just wanted to give a little bit of specifics.
3: Yeah, you know, and and her sister has been so vocal and um, that takes a lot of strength, you know, um, I didn't have it you know i i um i'm fight i'm not i'm a freeze my my crisis response is is to freeze and i just admire folks so much who are able to like grab themselves by the bootstraps just despite the pain and fear and keep keep fighting
4: caroline i just want to thank you as well for bringing up just the connection of inner tribalness that we have especially in the Pacific northwest patsy's brought this up a few times uh, like we had mentioned, we've uh, we've had some guests on who, the their relative or who they were looking for or who had come up, you know, they weren't Yakima, but it, they're connected to our reservation and our people and how our community responds to it, as well as we had a guest, uh, George Lee, whose mother was Yakima, but, you know, her or her death had happened in the metropolitan city of Seattle. Mm-hmm. And so... I know this is something that Willie really wasn't asked, but what is it like working with the municipals that are around your reservation and that connect with your tribe? Because you had mentioned something about like UIHI uh, and working with Washington State Patrol, but you guys are definitely close to like
3: Tacoma and Seattle. Like, what has that been like? The policies and procedures have been frustrating, but the individuals doing their job, I have had positive experiences with for the most part, limited to what their policies and procedures, you know, and what the politics will allow them to do. Um, so I've been, I've been grateful, you know, for that. We've been able to build really good relationships and have some meetings with our Pierce County prosecutor with local, you know, local law enforcement and Washington state patrol or tribal law enforcement, um, learning more about resources and, um, their response to our local community member who went missing last month was i was really impressed they showed up to the vigil they were receptive and quick to respond to phone calls and questions and and um that kind of thing and and we were really lucky you know really lucky for that there's a lot of work to be done as far as you know all of these programs are understaffed and undertrained They don't have the resources or the training to even know what the resources available to them are. Many of them don't know our state laws regarding missing people. Like one of the state laws is after 30 days to, we have an RCW that says after 30 days, the case should be filed with Washington State Patrol so that they can put it on their website and create posters and do distribution. Yet we, we have what is it over 1800 missing people in Washington state patrol yet only 64 of them on the website, you know, um, that's something an advocate can do. We don't need law enforcement to do that, but the families don't even get the information that you fill out this little packet of missing persons paperwork and send it to Washington state patrol. They'll get them on their website and create a poster and, you know, make sure that we have dental and DNA and a picture. there's a a long list of of individuals, Native Americans, who are missing with no picture and no dental records, you know, and um, no DNA. They could be unidentified somewhere, and those steps aren't taken to bring them home. Hopefully, Savannah's Act will help us um, bridge some of those gaps and and reunify some families. I do
4: have one last question for you, Carolyn, and we did ask. Your Facebook page has a lot of traffic on it. But we would like to know what do you do for self-care? Because I know sometimes running those large pages can be stressful. Um, Also hearing the type of information that comes through those sites can be distressful as well. What do you do for your own self-care to so you're not going to say, I'm done hearing all of these stressful stories, I'm just done today, you know, or do you take those breaks or like what do you do for self-care?
3: I think it's really organic on my end. I don't necessarily identify yet when I need that break. My spirit, and my body, just say you're going to bed and you're not going to get out for three days. So I'm still learning how to get ahead of that. I have been learning how to sew. Um, and sometimes if something is weighing really heavy on my heart, I'll break out my material and I'll sit down and I make little gift bags to put shells and sage and cedar into or a skirt or a purse or you know just something that i can focus on instead um it feels good to me to make giveaway items that i can give away for gratitude or for healing or anything and so that the the joy that i get in gift giving um and making those things is part of my self-care um i just learned how to read i don't see my, my piece anywhere but um I have been learning how to how to put beads together and I I never um thought I could do it like I didn't even try I was like nope it's hard (laughs) when I start beading, it's like I get a a, five minutes into it and I don't remember anything Mm -hmm. that was bothering me I'm focusing on how I like this color or that color or how oh that one didn't look so good next to that like you know (laughs) that has been a big part of my self-care spending time with my um my first grandson um is two years old and so spending time with him um whenever i get the chance my kids uh my family you know i i i enjoy rock hounding same thing when i'm out there looking for rocks i i'm like where's the like i kind of get addicted to where's the next where's the next beautiful rock (laughs) um (laughs) what else you know uh we can't gather so much anymore but it used to be you know going to going to gatherings whether that was a um an lng gathering or just anything that we had going on in our community is, is my self care um research uh reading about my family studying about history um anything like that you know
5: but i just want to say before we completely close i was thinking of our law enforcement as well and how they respond to trauma in their own community as some of them are being, you know, from here. And so I really think as we were talking, I was also texting with my friend, who's the victim's advocate that's going to be stationed there. And just the self-care and possibly the, you know, the network support that we could build as tribal communities with each other. Because that trauma, you know, I just think, a lot of the people that probably work in social services, I'm going to assume that may have unresolved trauma themselves, you know, and as we were talking about earlier, you know, that can get triggered at any time or they may not realize that they have the trauma. And so like, how do we take care of our first responders, you know, in those events. And so that I think that's also something that we should have on our forefront um, as well, because, you know, I know uh, the detective that, you know, just is leaving unfulfilled (laughs) and is, you know, carrying all of this and and coping unhealthy. And so it's like, how do we encourage that self-care without them becoming numb or insensitive to those situations or, you know, writing it off because we're such
3: a small community. Mm -hmm.
5: So that I just wanted to put that out there.
3: And we have some... um... I worked with a Yakima officer this spring, and it was early spring. It was still kind of cold outside, and there was a, a relative who was in the Tacoma area, and so I was kind of having some conversations with him, and she was able to make contact right away as soon as the word got out that people were looking for her. And you know, statistically, it's, it's that I think it's almost 90% of our missing people don't know that they're missing. And, um, you know, so we file a missing person's report, and sometimes they they come back sometimes they're they're laying low intentionally, but this this person was able to make contact and he was very very relieved, very empathetic and and responsive to my questions and to the family and and I think that you know that's not always the case that you know our families don't always get that but I think calling out you like we all do better when we feel some kind of some level of appreciation and making sure that what they have done is is um that they know that it's appreciated you know that they can set the example for other other people you know and kind of mentor other people through that and uh, we have some we have some good ones out there that really do care and want to use all their resources available to help um help our families. Dedication. Well, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Um, And the CDC had done a study a while back that that said that nearly 75% of our Native women homicides are due to domestic violence or intimate partner violence. It's the third leading cause of death for Native women ages 10 to 24, and Native men Homicide is the third leading cause of death for Native men, ages 10 to 34. I think just recognizing that Domestic Violence Awareness Month is upcoming. It's coming through the month of October, but domestic violence happens in our communities. It's prevalent in our communities all year long, and all of our loved ones who have um, survived and who've been lost and, you know, just honoring that. um, My cousin, Lenore Davis Lawrence, was murdered responding to a call for help from one of her friends who was in a DV crisis and she was shot in the back as she went there. And this wasn't her DV situation, but I think she answered the call that any of us would have done had our friend called and said, can you come get me? And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not necessarily the the victim or survivor that, that is the only person affected by that. You know but um it happens so much and just to remember you know that there are resources and there's support and that this is preventable um we don't have to lose our loved ones to domestic violence you know and statistically what did they say like 86 percent of native women are victims of sexual assault and dv and i just that's my that's my shout out my dedication is to our survivors um victims and survivors of domestic violence I just don't, I don't want to end without acknowledging, you know, the passing of Savannah's Act. Our legislators, Deb Holland and, and Ruth Buffalo and, and everybody who fought um, tooth and nail through through the House and the Senate and the whole process of getting Savannah's Act and the Not Invisible Act passed this time around to all the advocates and family members who de- who, who spent countless hours um, sharing their stories and their hearts and their prayers to to bring this to fruition, it's been a long time coming, and a lot of work went into trying to make this a really strong piece of legislation and twenty twenty has been an ugly year, but these are two beautiful things that have the potential to do a lot of good work so I think just acknowledging that you know that that Savannah didn't leave us without leaving behind a beautiful legacy i'm excited to see um where it goes
0: for credits we are edited and produced by robin pibishy logo by john only Schallenberger with native anthro sponsored by native owen in action shirts by nicole pibishy and music by lee seke